podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this special mini-series, we're sticking to home soil to discover some of the greatest export success stories taking place right here in Australia. Exporting can expose your business to a wealth of opportunities, but as we'll soon find out, there are some tricks and tips to getting it right. So in each of these six episodes, I'll speak to small businesses right across the country to find out how they've achieved their success overseas and what you can do to ensure your own. For most of the 20th century, every man in Australia wore hats. Workers, farmers, trade union leaders, captains of industry, even politicians. The same was the case in the UK and the US. And if you see the old black and white photos, whether you see crowds at a sporting event, at strikes or the stock exchange, every male head has a hat. But then something happened in the 1960s. Men started going hatless. Some blamed the election of President John F. Kennedy. A very youthful, good-looking man with a fine head of hair, JFK never wore a hat. And this upset the milliners so much that they begged the president to wear a hat. They sent hats to the White House itself. They thought that uh, seeing the president not wearing a hat was really bad for their business. Generational change happened in Australia too. You always saw older leaders like Arthur Corr and Ben Chifley wearing a hat, but then the young Gough Whitlam in the 60s went bareheaded. So did Harold Holt. And hats were sort of seen as old man attire, something you just see at the racetrack usually. This hatless era continued until Paul Hogan started wearing a Bushman's Akubra in Crocodile Dundee. And then National Party politician Tim Fisher started wearing his hat on his travels as Trade Minister, spruiking Australian exporters overseas. So hats are back, and they're no longer just for old men and rural politicians. They're worn by women and men, by young people, old people, middle-aged people, and there's a good reason, apart from how good they look, the rise of skin cancer. In fact, that's why I started wearing a hat in the strong Australian sun. So I have an Akuba to thank for my health and my well-being, as well as really improving my style. Well, joining me now is Stephen Keir, the head of Akubra. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Tim. Thanks for having me. Well, it's got a very interesting story, Akubra. How did the company start? Something about someone marrying the boss's daughter? Yeah, my great-grandfather actually came out from England and uh, met a... Well, I was working for a company in um, Tasmania and um, a man by the name of Benjamin Dunkley and um, he met his daughter and um, anyway, they, they got married and the, the rest is history, as they say. It took over the company. Yeah. And then my uh, great-grandfather had a background in, in hat making in England and then um, he, he progressed that company into hats and um, they moved to Sydney and into Waterloo and um, were there till 1974 for well, probably near on 90 years. And, um, yeah, the, you know, we've made hats ever since. I always wear a Cuba when I board a, a plane anywhere in the world and you instantly get compliments as you get on the plane. It's yeah. quite amazing. People see it as iconic Australian and they just love it, don't they, you know, wherever you go in the world? Well, it's amazing. I've, I've, I haven't travelled for a couple of years, but I, before that I was travelling a lot overseas and everywhere you went, oh, nice hat, nice hat, oh, where's that hat from? And a lot of people have uh, got a lot of interest in hats. Europe's big for hats and... People uh, know a good hat, I suppose, and they've always asked them the question. So when did Akubra start exporting, Stephen? In the 60s, believe it or not, we um, were exporting to um, 
a company we still export to in uh, Washington, Seattle, and uh, David Morgan is the name of the business, and um, we exported to pretty much, as far as I can see and, and remember and what my father told me, they were one of our first major export accounts, um, and that was in the 60s, and they're still an account today. They still buy a lot of hats from us today. So since then, you know, Seattle's had Bill Gates and Microsoft and Nirvana and Pearl yeah. Jam, it's all because of a Cobra uh, selling in there. We were set it off. We were there first. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and what markets do you export today? Is it what, Europe, America, yeah. Asia? Yeah, we're in um, Germany, the US. We've got a lot of places in Europe, but, but they're only very small. Um, and England, Tibet, China. Yeah, so we're sort of spread around a lot, which is, um, you know, America used to be huge for us. It's not that big now, but... Um, in the 80s when, you know, Greg Norman and Crocodile Dundee and all that was happening, um, you know, America couldn't get enough of our, our product, but um, that has uh, levelled out now. But, um, yeah, they're, they're our biggest ones, yeah. So when you go overseas, you've often found, like in the US, when you had that very good distributed, you know, David Morgan in Seattle worked out very well. Would that matter too, particularly in, in somewhere uh, like China or, or in Europe? Yeah, it would. Tim, I, I, to be honest with you, we went into China um, and we had lots of different people asking for hats. We were hot there for a, quite a few years and we probably didn't think it through very well. We just grabbed the orders as they came in and um, then we had the three or four distributors over there fighting with each other because they're all trying to fight for the same customers. We probably should have spent a lot more time trying to find one good distributor at, at the time and, and and uh, done it that way um, because once you have more than one, they all start bickering on price. Um, they're all trying to undercut each other when they're selling to a retail store and it doesn't end up sitting well with your product with the customer in the end. So go for one reliable distributor. I would and that's not easy to find. No, well, we're still looking. <laughs> <laughs> so Some markets are better than others. Yeah, true. Interesting. I mean, do you find some markets in general tougher than others in terms of exporting? A lot of them, I think they're all hard. Um, duties into some of these countries uh, just uh, make it really difficult to um, sell a lot of product. Um, we're paying a lot of duty into Germany and also into China, and that's our one of our biggest hindrances. Not In China, you pay duty going into the country, but then you also pay duty going to the states, so into each region. And um, so I think there's something like 30% duty on our product before it's even got into a retail shelf. So do you think the free trade agreements with, you know, potentially with Europe and with China, the US, do you think that can really help you get into different markets or certainly reduce the cost? I think it could, yeah. Um, when that'll happen, I don't know. Um, but it's not easy. Our biggest, I suppose, bugbear our customers have over there is that single one issue is duty and, and the cost it adds to our product. And by the time you add all that on there and, the, and you're selling a hat, uh, in Europe, and um, it's not cheap. It's not a cheap item at all, and um, you know it, 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 it's a hindrance to us. But yeah, you know, hopefully one day it'll be free. It's called protection. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, 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 yeah. A lot of those countries protect themselves well, but we tend to let a lot of things in uh, pretty cheaply, which is a bit frustrating on my behalf. But anyway, I mean, how does that affect you? I mean, do you import some components of what you make in your hats? We do import uh, raw material from Europe. There's a 5% duty on our, on, or just under 5%, I think it is, coming into Australia with our raw materials. But um, 
you know, 5% coming in, 30% going out. That yeah, doesn't yeah. seem fair, but anyway. So, so the tariffs on imports into Australia is, is quite low because Australia has very low tariffs, yeah. and yet when you export, you, you, you cop it. Yeah, yeah. Because the other countries are more protectionist. That's right, yep. What happens with exchange rates then? If the Aussie dollar gets weaker, does that, you know, make your hats cheaper, but then your import's more expensive? No, at the moment, it's we see we sell a lot of our product to overseas in Australian dollars. So um, when we import our raw materials, it's pretty expensive at the moment, the way the dollar is. So the yeah, dollar fluctuations sort of, um, when our dollar's where it is now, that sort of bites us a bit. What can you do about that? Is it Can you hedge? Could you have an American dollar account? Well... Or? Or you just live with it? My CFO at work uh, would probably cringe if he heard me say this, but we did try and hedge once and it didn't work out too well for us. So, <laughs> so you just... You just, so, you just <laughs> yeah, we just uh, go with the flow a bit. Take, so. the, take the swings and roundabouts. Yeah, yeah. So you'd be a pretty big employer in Kempsey. How many people do you employ at Cobra? Uh, we've got 117 now. We... Um, about four years ago, we had 83, and we were up to 117 now. We've um, we put on a national sales and marketing manager four years ago, and um, he seems to have struck a few goals with um, our retail network. And um, yeah, we're really busy. We, you know, we things have just sort of um, gone off in the last three or four years, and it's just progressively getting busier, which is uh, which is great. But it's. Um, I think social media's got a lot to do with that as well. We've got 75,000 followers on Instagram and, and there's a younger generation that's wow. been uh, made aware of our product, which is great because we used to worry about how on earth uh, we're going to get to the younger people and ask and, and for them to know, even know what our brand was. So you've even, I mean, I've even seen a Cobra in surf shops. So, I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? Well, Jim, you think of a Cobra as a traditional sort of thing, uh, don't you? I can tell you, we went to surf shops probably 10 or 12 years ago and tried to get in them and... It wasn't the right fit at the time, and you know we understood that. We, we thought we'd give it a go, and um, in then in the last couple of years they're coming to us. And Mick Fanning is a, a big follower of ours. Uh, he wears our product, and uh, I think um, there's a lot of surfers out there to wear our hats on social media, and it has just taken off. And uh, you know we're probably selling into 15 surf shops now, which was unheard of, as I said, 12, 15 years ago. So Mick Fanning, I've got. Another thing in common, we're both fans of Akubras and he's just won a few more surf championships than I have. That's exactly, he's like me. <laughs> <laughs> You're like me, I haven't won any either, so. <laughs> but we're, we're all Cobra fans. Yeah. And also, I mean, you know, the smart young women around Sydney, they always wear an Akubra, don't they? That's quite fashionable now. Yeah, well, we get a lot of people sending photos in, you know, and hashtagging Akubra official and... Um, a lot of them are young girls, and um, I don't think you see a bad photo either. They all look fantastic, and it's just they've allowed us to reach a generation that we didn't think we could get to. And uh, we've got so many photos there to use of people who are proudly buying the product and wearing the product and hopefully get on our Instagram page. But, um, you know, we do one post a day, and uh, we've probably got enough photos to do 10 a day. Do you market yourself very differently in, in different places around the world, or you just stick to the iconic Akubra and build on that yeah. story to be authentic? We actually just build on the iconic Akubra authenticity side of things. Um, we don't do a lot of marketing in Europe. We leave that up to our distributors. We don't know where to go over there, so we leave, we, we out of a percentage of the sales we do to these people, we give in a marketing budget, and they, they market however they see fit. What we perceive in Australia is a marketing and a correct fit for our product um, over, say, in America is completely 
left field and not going to work. So internally in Australia, we do a lot of marketing and we're, we're pushing, you know, the Australian made, Australian owned, authentic product uh, line, which um, we're really proud of. And that's, uh, you know, we're manufacturing in a country that's not set up for manufacturing anymore. That what really struck me was that you hear this doom and gloom about Australian manufacturing, but you go to a place like a Cooper, like I did in Kempsey, and there you are. You know, you're doing it all around the world. Um, you got your staff on a four day week. You know, good work and family balance, good wages, good health and safety, good uh, flexi time, and so on. It doesn't that show that really Australia can manufacture? We can. We, it can be done. I it, like. I've got no doubts that it can be done. But why we? And I'm purely talking from my point of view, but um, probably 20 years ago, I think manufacturing became a lost cause in um, in everyone's eyes, and tourism was the next big thing, and the dollar was on parity, and you know all all that, and then tourism's fallen back because the dollar's dropped, and now we're um, you know we're languishing, um, and you know a lot of things got let go, like trades apprenticeships, all that sort of stuff. That was all let go. As soon as we stop making things in this country, we, you won't get that back. We need to make stuff. We need to be able to produce things for ourselves. Um, and we're doing it. We've been doing it for 140-odd years, and we're still doing it. The, the beauty of our business, being a family-owned business, is we don't have to answer to shareholders. We answer to ourselves. So if things are tough, well, we do it a little bit hard. You know, we, we, we'll, we'll cut back in areas, but we, we're not looking for peak performance, peak uh, profits every year, year on year. If things are tough, we scale things back. Now, tell me about Kempsey. I mean, you're a major employer. Do you find it easy to get skilled labour for your factory? Do you find the Kempsey community very good for a Cobra? What's the relationship with the local community? Yeah, the Kempsey community's been fantastic for us um, since 74, but I will say in the last five years it's been really difficult finding staff. Um, I don't know. I think mining um, had a lot to do with it and a lot of fly-in, fly-out workers. But um, it's been hard, but one of our um, supervisors at work got in touch with the highest local high schools and we've been picking up a lot of kids that are finishing year 10, don't want to be at school, and um, they're starting with us and um, on the proviso that if they don't last with us, they're going straight back to school. They're not using us as an excuse to leave school. And um, these kids have been terrific. But, um, yeah, we it's sort of filled a gap that, uh, you know, I think of, even from when you were up there uh, recently, we've probably put on 10 kids that are probably 17 years old and they're, uh, you know, they're having a go. And uh, it's, it's not for everyone. Like, manufacturing's hard work. And I think out of, you know, we we might have lost two that have gone back to school or, and the rest are, uh, have stayed and they don't have much time off or anything, which has uh, been a plus for us. And you have a four-day week, so mm. it's good for, you know, sports and yep. and family time. It is, and um, you know we are working overtime on a Friday at the moment, which you know we we have to do. We're just under the pump that much, but um, it is a four day week, and even when we work overtime, they finish at eleven o'clock on a Friday, so they can um, you know do what they have to do on a Friday. And, and whereas if they're working a normal five day week, it's uh, you know it's all a bit um, pushed, and they don't get a long weekend when they can. So, and you have quite a long uh, standing commitment to the indigenous community. Locally too, don't you? Yeah, we have it. We've we've employed um, quite a lot of Indigenous people there. We're actually working um, with a group called Clontarf. Um, they actually started off in Perth and mentoring um, a lot of Indigenous children through school and uh, do the HSC and then uh, move on into the workforce. And uh, we're hoping it works. Um, you know, they're keen. 
and they're given a goal and they've got people there to help them through that, which is um, which is terrific, I think. Now, bringing it back to exporting, you know, you've you've got this amazing, you know, fourth generation family business. Mm. What advice would you give to other people thinking about going offshore? You know, even people that aren't mm. in in manufacturing or in your particular game. You know, it's it's hard, but mm. can you do it? Well, I think you can, but I think you've got to be prepared to take advice and don't think yeah. you know it all yourself because you don't. We deal with for a long time and still get a lot of information through via Austrade um, and also Australian business have been uh, terrific in helping with export. Doesn't always win. You don't always win. But, um, you know, you, if you uh, if you find one good customer and you've tried four or five times, well, I think you've you've had a victory. So, but you've just got to be prepared to take advice and, um, and sit back and uh, don't try and do it overnight because it won't work. You've got to look at it um, long term and you've got to... Um, put a really good plan in place and listen to everything that's said to you because it does get really confusing. Uh, different uh, economies have different ways that they think they should pay you and uh, without getting into the nitty-gritty of it all, you need to be paid to um, operate your business and sometimes if you don't do it the right way, you, you send product away and um, that's the end of it. You'll never see anything for it. So what would be the thing you're most proud of, of a Cobra? Um... Of a Kubra, uh, our longevity, and um, to be still manufacturing now in Australia um, with everything that's been forgotten with manufacturing, we're still doing it. And I think we've been out there supporting Australians uh, all that time. And, uh, you know, and I suppose one of the biggest ones is that we've made most of the slouch hats for the military. In for the, the diggers. For the diggers. And, um, you know, to see Anzac Day and... And to see what our little small company's sort of been able to do for for Australia is um, the proudest thing I can think of. Well, Stephen, you've won me over. Let's hope a few more people put on a Cobra in the future. And uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks very much, Tim. I hope so too. Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au, download the app, or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt and I'm the Airport Economist.